Like a Unicorn. Noah Kirel makes it to the Eurovision finals. But how does her song compare to other Israeli winners? We're going to break that down. Lots of fun today. Robbed in broad daylight. Power couple Daniel and Kylie Lobel are here to share their frightening experience and how you can help. And what does it take to make a difference? Everything. Rabbi Shia Hecht is here, a.k.a. the Hasidic Holtbuster, to discuss his new book, Whatever It Takes. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and lovely host, Hanla Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 108. Welcome, welcome. So glad you are here. So glad I am here. Luckily, I live in Beit Shemesh, which has been pretty quiet. Although in the south, Sterot, Ashkelon, Nitivot, Beersheva, even West Rishon Lezion I saw last night, non-stop rocket barrages. Now, rockets are not fireworks. They are massive flying bombs that were created to destroy homes and kill people. That's their purpose. They were created and funded by Iran so that Palestinians can use them to shoot indiscriminately at Israel and kill men, women, and children. Meanwhile, we have Israel literally holding their fire. A video clip came out from the IDF operation in Gaza. We can hear the radio communication between a spotter and the trigger man in the Air Force after they see two kids in the vicinity of the location where they were going to strike. And the, the Chayal says, there's a child here outside, 40 meters, hold fire, hold fire. This is a regular occurrence, and it makes Israel's job so much harder. No army in the world goes through this much effort, yet nobody cares. Nobody cares. The world media certainly doesn't care. And instead, we get blasted on Twitter for being child murderers, which is so ridiculous and so beyond the pale. It's like people are living in La La Land. People are literally living in denial about what's taking place here in Israel. Well, I can tell you, the Palestinians are terrorists. <laughs> and Israel, well, we're defending ourselves from terrorists. So there's no shame in that. Speaking of terrorists, Rashida Talib or as I like to call her, Trashida Talib. She is just a thorn in my tuchus. She is. I am not a fan. <laughs> as you know, uh, last night, or the truth is, as you don't know, because most of you don't get your news from anybody except me, there was an event held in the U.S. Capitol that initially was canceled by Kevin McCarthy, who tweeted out yesterday that the congressional event to mourn the catastrophe of Israel's founding will not be taking place. Uh, the event was going to be hosted by Talib alongside an array of anti-Israel groups, some of which who have defended terrorism, including Rashida herself. Rashida. That's right. Unfortunately, however, Bernie Farkak to Sanders, well, he was like, I have an idea. Forget the Congress. Let's host this in the Senate. And that is the reason that I had to wake up, look at my phone, and practically throw up in my mouth. Like Ben Shapiro said, Bernie Sanders is as Jewish as a ham sandwich topped with shrimp on lard bread. He is so trafe. He is so toxic. He is such a bad Jew that he deserves the company he keeps. He really does. Because who the heck wants to hang out with those people besides terrorist supporters? Do you guys know what the Nakba is? The Nakba was the failure of five Arab countries to annihilate Israel. And in case you think I'm kidding, Azam Pasha, the Arab League Secretary General at the time, he said that it will be a war of annihilation. It will be a momentous massacre in history that will be talked about like the massacres of the Mongols or the Crusades. But let's throw a party, thinks Bernie Sanders, on a day where it's raining rockets on the Jewish people here in Israel. Let's throw a party and celebrate the Nakba. And yes, it was a celebration because if you see the selfie here of a bunch of these Arab terrorist supporters smiling ear to ear, grinning, grinning that they got a sucker like Bernie Sanders to host their event. 
It's retarded. I'm sorry. It's retarded. I'm, I know I'm not allowed to use that word, but I'm using it because I think Bernie Sanders is special needs. I do. I think he's special needs. Anyways, so this event takes place. They discuss for two hours what Nebach the Palestinians are, and then everybody goes home, and we continue to deal with the fallout of having anti-Israel members in the Senate and Congress. They all have to be removed. Removed, goodbye, in the trash, Bernie Sanders, Trashida Talib, and all her terror tubby friends. By the way, that's not a term that I coined. My friend David Lange from IsraeliCool.com, um, he uses that term all the time. I think it's hilarious. A terror tubby, a fat <laughs> Palestinian terror supporter. So one of her besties tweeted out yesterday, illegal squatters fleeing the beach in Tel Aviv after receiving siren alert from incoming resistance traffic from the Gaza Strip. And lo and behold, what do we have? A picture of this guy and Rashida Tlaib. Who else do we have here? Oh, we also have this guy uh, photographed here with Linda Salzor, another lovely Jew hater. So whatever their relationship might be, who, who are we kidding? This is what they talk about. They talk about how much they hate Israel. These people are Jew haters to their cores. Jew hating birds of a feather, they flock together. I'm looking here at a photograph of Rashida Tlaib's lovely face. <laughs> a face only a Palestinian grandmother could love. And everybody in the photograph, half the people are wearing hijabs and are clearly Muslims. They are grinning ear to ear. I have yet to attend a Holocaust memorial where people take a selfie where they are grinning ear to ear. Hard to imagine how serious these people are. But they're survivors. They're survivors of a Nakba. Give me a break. They all look overfed to me. So I don't think anyone there is suffering. I think this is one big scam and Washington needs to address this. I mean, think about it. This woman gets up wearing a red and green towel thing around her throat and says in public on a day when missiles are raining down on innocent men, women, and children here in Israel. And she says, no child should ever have to worry what will fall from the sky. No, they don't have to worry about that if your terrorist cousins would stop shooting missiles from their neighborhoods. Palestinians aren't going anywhere except to hell, okay? And we have the right to tell our stories of the Nakba of 1948. No, you don't, because you are a bunch of lying cows, okay? You are a lying cow, and nothing that comes out of your mouth is accurate. As a matter of fact, Twitter keeps adding community notes to all your tweets because you're so full of hot air and so full of macaroni baloney that nobody believes you anymore. Now, as far as what you can do, take action. I mean, right into your Congress, right into your senator, right into your, your local representative. The, the entire reason that McCarthy actually intervened it was because of a letter sent out by a rabbinical group asking leaders of the House and Senate to condemn this event. The Coalition for Jewish Values, a pro-Israel advocacy organization comprised of more than 2,000 rabbis, they wrote a letter and they said that it is unsurprising but appalling that a member of Congress who describes the only Middle Eastern country to give equality and voting rights to both Jews and Arabs in apartheid. It is not an apartheid and you are a liar. Your face is an apartheid. Ridiculous. Yeah, so she gets all these anti-Israel, terror-supporting BDS nutjobs into a room so they can discuss the vilification campaigns against the world's only Jewish nation. Let me tell you something, folks. Rashida Tlaib is not sending money to Gaza. Rashida Tlaib is not looking to help anyone. She doesn't give a flying falafel ball about what happens uh, to any of the Palestinians here in Israel. All she cares about is the clout and attention she gets for, for supporting the Palestinian cause out of her cozy Washington apartment. What a joke. What a joke. All right, let's move on to something a little more joyful. Now, we have a great show for you today. So much to cover. But first, did you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? And so many people have that I am felling. My heart is full. Thank you to the 15 plus people who took a minute and left me a beautiful review on Apple Podcasts. As a matter of fact, 
I'm going to read some of them. So this way you guys can understand what I'm asking from you. Seriously, just go to Apple Podcasts and sing my praises. And then you can win some awesome books from Mosaic Press. One of you are going to win those books, including Whatever It Takes, a book written by Rabbi Shia Hecht, a Hasidic cult buster. He's my guest today. You guys are going to love that. And I'd be thrilled to send one of you a bunch of brand new books because I love books and books are a great price. All right, let's read some of these comments. Hanala's podcast, The Weekly Squeeze, is just wonderful. The perfect mix of information and humor and is always respectful of everyone, except the you-know-whos. <laughs> Who? Who could we be talking about? Always looking forward to listening to Hanala. After a few months, I became a regular listener to Hanala's podcast. She talks about the latest headlines in Israel and U.S. with a plum, humor, and humility. What is a plum? I was never, ever described as a plum. A-P-L-O-M-B. <laughs> I enjoy the conversations and their perspectives from Hanala and her guests, who bring so much insight in their discussions, keeping me abreast of the latest discoveries, charities, activities, and now incredible books. You are a really good writer, whoever you are. Come on the podcast. Help me with my job. I'm the kind of person who likes to have music in the background to keep my engines running, but I can do the same and learn so much from the upbeat and realistic Torah and Zionist perspective with the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you, Hanel, and thanks to all your guests for sharing with us. That's so nice. Wow. This comment, I find so many from podcasts are talking about topics not so from. I love that Hanel is sensitive about the topics she chooses to discuss. I certainly do try. It's a real Torah perspective. That is simply my mother. Every time I speak to her about the podcast, she tells me, stay true to who you are, and you'll be okay. At the same time, Hanala is so open and real. I love it. Uh, I just love Hanala's podcast. Okay, thank you. Uh, love, love the podcast. Thank you. Such racist and bigoted content. No friend to social justice or true peace. Palestine, not Israel. <laughs> uh, let's see what else we have here from the haters. Uh, da, 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 da. Thank you guys so much, by the way, because the one star reviews that these terrorists left me, well, they, they pull the show down. This woman is a fanatic Zionist. Yes, I am. And proud. She tweets incredibly racist and hateful things about Palestinians constantly and conflates criticism of the apartheid state of Israel with Jew hatred. Her perspective and whatever commentary she has to peddle is not trustworthy. You are not winning any books, my friend. You are not winning any books. I have great tweets. As a matter of fact, some of my tweets did supremely well in the last few days, including this one, where I wrote, watching the Free Palestine crew melt down over civilian casualties in Gaza is truly stunning. For 75 years, they have been ruthlessly and callously murdering and maiming Israeli men, women, and children with axes, cars, and bombs. You would think this double standard would be embarrassing, but these sickos have no shame. That got like 30,000 views on Twitter. Yeah, the truth stands. MS. Aleph, two legs, stand straight. The mem, flat on the ground. Tough, two legs, stand straight. Think about the word sheker. The shin has a point. The kuf, one leg. The resh, one leg. Why? Because sheker always falls over. And that's what I predict. Hopefully no one will get hurt along the way. I want to wish a safe and healthy day to the chayalim. Please keep Israeli soldiers in your prayers every single day, all day. Actually, yesterday I was in Nativ Laman Hay, a little kibbutz near my house, just kind of floating around, enjoying the nature. And I saw a huge group of chaylim preparing to, I guess, go to war. They were carrying mattresses on their head and packing up their bags. And I was just thinking, these boys are children. They're 18 to 21 years old. And they are going into these neighborhoods where terrorists determined to kill Israelis at any cost are shooting at them with machine guns and Molotov cocktails and bricks and bottles and whatever they can get their hands on. And Hashem should protect them. And B'nai Israel should be safe here in Eretz Israel in our land. 
This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Israel 365, a terrific organization. I can vouch for them. I know Tully Weiss. I know the people who work there. This is 100% legit. And that's why I'm asking you, my Weekly Squeeze listeners, to help adopt Ukrainian orphans here in Israel. I spoke at length to a gentleman who knows all the details about the 60 Jewish Ukrainian children who are now living here in Israel without their parents for one reason or the other, trying to rebuild their lives. But to follow their dreams, they first need food, clothing, shelter, love, care, and support. One of the most important mitzvahs we have is to support orphans. The Torah warns us 23 times to take care of orphans. Ukrainian orphans in Israel are physically safe in the Israeli city of Ashdod, but what would their future look like? Will they be emotionally and spiritually healthy? Will they get married and earn an honest living or the opposite? God willing, they will only have a bright, positive, and productive future, but only if we help them. So head over to my show notes, make a small donation, $18, $36, and help these 60 orphans follow their dreams. The link, Israel365, is in my show notes. All right, let's talk about Eurovision. Uh, Two nights ago was Eurovision, the annual international song competition in which countries around Europe And more recently, actually, around the world, they participate by submitting an original song. They perform it live on TV. And each participating country gets to vote. It's like American Idol for Europe. By the way, Europeans are nuts. They're all a bunch of weirdos. Seriously, I watched the show a couple years back, and every country was weirder than the next. Every performance was more bizarre than the next. And the face of every country was an Arab, quite literally, it was like Italy, and it was Mohammed <laughs> singing. It was like Ireland, and it's Mohammed singing. And then it was France, and it's Mohammed singing. Because there are so many Arabs in Europe, and God forbid we should offend any of them by not allowing them to perform in Eurovision or choosing them, that it's, it's everyone's brown. So I, I don't get the diversity anymore. And the day that Israel sends an Arab, it's going to be over. Like, I am packing my bags, and I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> it's not going to be a good day. All right, a few fun facts about Eurovision. Um, The first contest was held in 1956. There were only seven countries. The most successful country in Eurovision history being Ireland. Yamach Shemam, Jew haters over there. ABBA performed, Celine Dion, Julio Iglesias. In 1974, ABBA won the contest for the song Waterloo, my mother's favorite song ever, which went on to become a global hit and one of the most iconic Eurovision songs of all times. Eurovision is, it's a bizarre festival. It's known for its bizarre performances. There's dancing grandmothers to once a man dressed as a giant hamster. True story. Uh, The contest has a reputation for being political, uh, with countries often voting for their neighbors or allies. You think? Then again, Israel did win, so that's a good thing. And maybe they'll win again, because Noah Carell came in number five, and she is going to be in the finale. That's pretty awesome. Eurovision is a massive global event, and it attracts millions of viewers from all over the world. So I thought, why don't we just go through some of the winners, that is, all of the winners, rather, that Israel has had in Eurovision. Now, I know some of you are careful with Kol Isha, so I was thoughtful and included songs that are mostly not Kol Isha. I think pretty much all of them are not Kol Isha, and that includes Neda, who's, who's just a giant chicken. And that's not considered a female voice. <laughs> it's also so digitally processed. It's it's literally not possible that it could be considered kol isha. It doesn't sound like a kol or an isha. So that's that. All right, let's go through the list. We have the first year, 1973. The singer was 
Yezar Cohen and Alphabeta. So my husband knows this stuff, and he's laughing at me that I'm like, Yezar Cohen. I don't, Yezar Cohen, that's that's what it says. Yod Zayin Heresh, Yizal, Yizal Cohen. And the song is called Abanibi. Abanibi. Here's a clip. Abanibi, All right, you got to hear this. The first time that Israel actually won Eurovision with that song, they had a, a score of 157 points. They didn't see it. Israelis didn't see it. They were all sitting by their TVs. And as it turns out, the Israeli Broadcasting Association, this was 1973, remember, didn't buy enough broadcasting time. So 10 minutes before the final announcement, the screen goes dark. So Israelis start messing around with their antennas, thinking maybe they can tune into Jordanian TV. As it turns out, <laughs> the Jordanians were watching, realizing that these cute dancing Zionists were about to win, and they couldn't bear showing it to the people of Jordan, so they cut off the transmission, and they put a picture of flowers instead. Okay, This was before the peace accord. Um, yeah, Israel's, Israel's participation has always been an issue, always been political, but you know what? We're winning, and that's just what it comes down to. Okay, so back to Yizar Cohen, the first winner. He was the Yemenite version of John Travolta. And Israelis found out that he won through the radio. Now, as it turns out, this song was originally meant to be a children's song. It's about a secret language that kids used to talk about things that they were too shy to say out straight, like, I love you. So they added a B after every vowel. So instead of saying, Ani Ohevotach, meaning I love you, they said, Abanibi Obehebev Obatabach. So as it turns out, uh, the songwriter's partner told them that the song was too good to be a children's song. So they sent it to the song festival, and the rest is history. Let's just listen to that one more time. Now, by the way, that song was written by Nurit Hirsch, a very famous Israeli composer, arranger, and conductor who has written over a thousand Hebrew songs, including Bashana Haba'a. Yes, you know that one. And from Abanibi to Hallelujah in 1979, Israel won again the following year, Gili Atari and Milk and Honey in the most 70s performance you've ever seen in your life. It doesn't get more 70s than this. I'm talking about the guys in the white suits, the flipped hair, the whole thing, the orange stage in the background, the the orchestra in the pit. So, so, so cheesy, but such a good song. They did not host the following year, as Eurovision winners do. First of all, Israel couldn't afford it because it was already the second time in a row. And second of all, the date that the contest fell out on in 1980 was Yom Azikaron, Israel's Memorial Day. So not only did they not host, but they withdrew from the contest and nobody represented Israel in 1980. Here's a little clip from Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Such a good song. 20 years later, 20 years later was the next big win for Israel with Dana International, Sharon Cohen, born February 1969, an Israeli pop singer. She was successful. She had three albums, three compilation albums as well, and she won Eurovision with the song Diva. 
which of course was tongue-in-cheek, considering she wasn't even a woman. She was a male at birth, and she identified as female from a very young age. She became a singer at eight years old. She grew up watching Ofra Chaza perform her song Chai in the 1983 Eurovision Song Contest. It didn't win. Great song. Um, her family was very poor. Her, her parents paid for her music lessons, and she said she had a happy childhood. But she came out as a man at the age of 13. Years later, she actually had a gender reassignment surgery and legally changed her name to Sharon Cohen and wound up in Eurovision in 1998 with the song Diva. I can only imagine the tumult that took place here in Israel when the Orthodox Jews realized that this woman man, this trans person was going to win the contest. Oh my God. She actually shared the message, my victory proves God is on my side. I want to send my critics a message of forgiveness and say to them, try to accept me and the kind of life I lead. I am what I am, and this does not mean I don't believe in God, and I am part of the Jewish nation. Well, she won for the Jewish nation with this song. Now, mind you, that's not Kalisha because she's not an Isha. The next win was when I was already living in Israel. Neda, Neda Barzalai, an Israeli singer-songwriter and looping artist, she won 2018 for the song Toy. Not a fan. <laughs> I'm just not a fan. She, she gained popularity here in Israel after being on the fifth season of The Voice. And then she went to Eurovision, and she won with a total of 529 points, the fourth highest score in the contest's history making it the fourth time Israel won this competition. I don't know if you saw it, but basically Toy featured a loop station, which allowed her to record and play back her vocals in real time. It's, it's, not, it's, it's harder than it looks, I'll be honest, but she pulled it off and she won, even though I didn't vote for her because I thought the song was garbage. I did. I thought the song was garbage. The only thing I like about Neda is the giant toy monument that they have in the Hulon Children's Museum. That is Neda. That is Neda made out of toys. I'm going to put it in the WhatsApp group, the Weekly Squeeze WhatsApp group, a photograph of that, the giant Neda toy monster at the museum. It's adorable, honestly, but that's really the only thing about Neda that I like. I, I'm sorry. I don't understand how this is music. I mean, I, I consider myself open-minded, but this is literally a chicken using auto-tune. <laughs> Pretty sure I saw that Netta went to Eurovision to support Noah, and she looks great these days. I, I'm again not a fan of her style, not a fan of her music, but I'm pretty sure she is taking those epic. She looks good. I mean, she looks really good. Okay, next Noah Kirell. Now I've spoken about Noah Kirell on this podcast. It's challenging for me because on the one hand. She's representing Israel at the Eurovision. Everyone's talking about her, and it's good. It's good for Israel to be a winner. <laughs> but at the same time, this is pure secularism, and it's just questionable if we should applaud her, if we should revel in her win, if we should support her, if we should vote. I don't know. What do you guys think? Anyways, here in Israel, Noah Carell is a massive star. I mean, she's in, in Israel, when you're a star, you're everywhere. You're in every pharmacy. You're on every clothing brand. You are the face of all the products. And Noah Carell 
is no exception. But again, let's talk about the actual song. Like, can we just discuss the lyrics from the song? It starts like this. It's going to be phenomena, phenomena, phenomenal, phenomena, phenomenal, feminine, feminine, feminal. I'm going to stand here like a unicorn out here on my own. I got the power of a unicorn. Don't you ever learn that I won't look back. I won't look down. I'm going up. You better turn around. The power of a unicorn, the power of a unicorn. I'm going to be phenomenal, phenomenal, blah, 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 phenomenal. That's not a song. <laughs> That's not a song. That's not a song. Those are not lyrics. They say nothing. They mean nothing. I don't know. Uh, call me crazy. But if you're going to submit a song to Eurovision, write something groundbreaking. Write something brilliant. Write something fresh and creative. There's no song there. You take away the music. You take away the dancing. You take away the, the, the stage. You take away the lights. You take away the audience, the costumes. There's nothing left. Can Noah Carell sing the song on her guitar? Is there a song actually that exists without everything that's involved to kind of hold it up? Prop up the song? I don't think so. Here's a little clip. You want to see me dance? Yeah, you want to see me dance? Watch me. Now, I actually didn't watch Eurovision, like I said earlier, and that's why I know that Netta is actually performing, or she performed alongside musicians from other countries as a previous winner. She's a good performer. I mean, she, I think she had a concert here in Israel that was sold out, but not a fan. Let's move on. All right, so if you listen to episode 107 with Melinda Strauss, you know my opinion on social media. I love it. I embrace it. I use it. It could be used for good. But it is a slippery slope. And that's why I was really disappointed to see that Vus is Nice basically cut and pasted an article that they did not write. Clearly, they did not write this because it's not, it's not suitable for their audience. They cut and pasted an article about Mary Mazagui, who has 1.6 million followers on TikTok. She's an influencer that talks about Yiddishkeit. I only discovered her when I opened the New York Post and saw a sordid title describing her relationship with her husband because she went public talking about Tara Samashbacha. Do you think it's appropriate to talk about Tara Samashbacha and the private lives of a Jewish husband and wife on social media when there are millions of people following you? I mean, people call her Spicy Miriam. She says she welcomes everyone to her channel. She accepts them for who they are and she makes them feel comfortable, which is why people like her. She's all about education and in a world full of stereotypes and, and falsehoods and blood libels about Jews, it's nice to see somebody actually fighting back on social media. However... Where do we draw the line? Like, why is Vus Nias sharing an article that has words in it that I don't say out loud in front of my children? Like, I thought that Vus Nias filters content. I don't know. I, I don't get it. I'm a little disappointed. I like Miriam, but, you know, TikTok is, it's just a cancer on society. And kolk fuda basmelch penima. I know I'm here on, po uh, on the podcast speaking my mind, but I have a small Hamisha audience. She's talking to millions of people about her private life. I'm not trying to trash her, chas v'shalom. I think she's doing amazing. But there has to be some sensitivity and filtering when it comes to just reposting what random journalists are taking away from all these from TikTokers. It's a delicate balance. It really is. And just because we have the capacity to share whatever we want doesn't mean we should. I don't know. That's coming from someone who's never shared a picture of her husband and pretty much her children on social media. But that's just me.
All right, so much more to get to. The Lobels are here, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at, well, the truth is they're in California. I'm the one who's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed um, to share a harrowing experience that they had following. Well, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let them tell you. And then I have Rabbi Shia Hech. So this is a really packed show. But before I get to those two interviews, real quick, tonight is my cousin Razel Zucker's yard site. If you didn't know Razel, well, you missed out because she was literally a tzaddikis. She was 38 years old when she passed. She had eight children. And unfortunately, um, the doctors discovered her cancer when it was too late. It was already completely metastasized, and it took about a year for it to kill her. Um, very heartbreaking. She was my dear friend. We spoke on a regular basis. I loved her children. I used to visit her in Beitar all the time. She was my first cousin, my childhood friend, and just a wonderful, wonderful person. So not to bring everyone down, I want to encourage you to smile for Razel. That's it. Smile for Razel. I never met someone who always had a smile on her face like Razel. I'm going to share a little clip with you now that her sister Henya sent to me, with permission, of course. Henya's Razel's older sister and had the privilege to experience her goodness and her kindness and her tremendous heart till her last day. What you're going to hear now is a woman who is dying of cancer, who is leaving eight children behind who is comforting her sister, her older sister, who was in a panic because she visited her during COVID, only to discover that she had COVID. And then she was terrified, terrified that she had passed that along to her sister, Razel. And Razel, who was so sick, sends her sister, Henya, this message. This just gives you a tiny glimpse of who Razel was. Henya, I want you to know that Shem is in charge of everything. And he's the one that made you be close to other people and not close at different times. You are not in charge of who gets sick and who doesn't get sick. Calm down if you can and breathe. Just breathe and take in good energy and know that we love you no matter what happens. And this is how she was till the end. Next level, bitachan, amuna, and gratitude. For everything and everyone in her life. She was truly an exceptional person. I wrote a beautiful song about her after she passed. I, I couldn't come to myself. I was just, I cried for three days straight. My husband took the kids to my mother-in-law and he told me, I'm leaving. Write a song about Razel. Put your feelings into words. Now is the time to capture the loss. And I did. And I wrote The Rose. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that you can watch it on YouTube or even share it with somebody who also lost somebody. Uh, perhaps it will provide them some comfort. Okay, let's move on to the Lobels. Who are the Lobels, you ask? Well, Daniel is a comedian based out of California, and he spent a couple of weeks in Spain where he filmed a documentary surrounding a comedy sketch that he did discussing Judaism and his history as a Spanish Jew whose family had been expelled from Spain in 1492. He went back to Spain with his delightful wife, Kylie. They filmed this documentary. I watched it. I thought it was hilarious. It's going to be part of a Jewish film festival. I'm going to put links in the show notes for you. He's also a comic book writer and a podcast host. Unfortunately, he had a very, very bad experience recently with an intruder on his property. Um, I'm going to let them share their story. Perhaps you can help them. They are a lovely couple. Kylie herself is a talented PR woman extraordinaire and um, all my interactions with them have been just terrific so without further ado Kylie and Daniel Lobel Kylie and Daniel welcome to the weekly squeeze so glad you are here Daniel if you wanted to come back on the show you didn't have to go to such great lengths to get my attention 
<laughs> hey, look, we'll do what we have to do. I mean, the show is great. So. Thank you. I didn't tell my audience what your story is. I wanted it to unfold naturally. We want to, you know, create some drama here. So tell us a little bit about the podcast bus and what you guys have been going through the last week since a random dude walked onto your property and stole how much money worth of gear are we talking about? Approximately $25,000 worth of equipment. But he didn't walk onto the property. He jumped the wall into our property. It, he he broke into our property. And he broke into my bus and stole my equipment. And part of it was going on while I was home. I went out and came back and it was still happening and I didn't know. I missed the robbery by eight minutes. I found that out from the surveillance footage. When I went out there, the doors were open. And I know I would never leave the doors open. And I thought, blame my wife, you know? <laughs> I was like, ah, Kylie must have done it. But okay, whatever. I'll go close them. Not that she's ever done that, but I just was like, it just didn't occur to me that we'd been robbed. So when did you discover that someone had broken into your podcast caravan? I went there to close the doors. And then I looked to, what I always do is look to see my cameras are okay. And when they weren't there, it was just like, my heart sunk. I was just, it was, I Tell was Tell me shocked. a little bit about what was in the van, what kind of gear. So my listeners have an idea. People don't understand how much gear costs. If I say, God forbid, that somebody stole my gear, I mean, a microphone costs 800 bucks. So it adds up very quickly. So tell us a little bit about what was in there and what you guys actually do there. I had a microphone in there that cost way more than 800 bucks. An, a Neumann microphone, five RE20 microphones. Uh, from Electro Voice, I had a board. I had an ATEM mini switcher ISO from Blackmagic. Three Blackmagic cameras with lenses on them. I had a several thousand dollar lens, a uh, Canon lens that went to my another camera that I have. That not one of those, but I, I mean, and the list goes on. Headphone amps, headphones, uh, SD cards, um, uh, SSDs. How did he take everything? How did he carry everything out? It's actually all pretty small. Um, it was in a bag. I mean, he went and stole yeah. a bag from our garage. What but, kind of bag was it? Very Jewish. Yeah, an amazing. What a savings. duffel bag! Oh, amazing savings. <laughs> if you remove yourself from the tragedy, the irony of it's kind of funny because that is it did live up to the name Amazing Savings <laughs> for him. Was, yeah, years of my hard work to pay for him. He must have been like, "Wow, what an amazing savings!" Did, did he did he know that you guys had this kind of stuff on your property? You think he was scouting you out, or this was just a random burglary? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I hope the police will catch him and find that out. Um, okay, but there's more to this because there's a clip caught on camera that everybody's talking about where you actually confront him. I have yet to, I mean, the truth is maybe like on America's stupidest burglars, but I've yet to discover a thief who comes back, you know, meets the owner of the house that he stole from while he's trying to, what, take his fingerprints off the door? Was that was that what happened? Yeah, yeah I didn't even so random and bizarre. I can't, I, it's just so bizarre. Where do you guys live? <laughs> Pico Robertson, Los Angeles. Right. I think that's yeah. I think that's important to share. Yeah, I went in and I was watching the footage of the robbery over and over and over again, compulsively, like just rewatching it, nauseous, my head spinning. Two hours went by in two minutes, and I was like, "Let me just go out there now and and assess the damages and see exactly what he stole." So I go out. I'm not even looking up because I'm like I'm looking down because I'm so upset and defeated. And I'm walking towards the bus and I look up and I'm like stunned because the guy is there. 
And he was wiping his fingerprints off, but I only got that information when I rewatched the video because in that moment, I couldn't process what he was doing there. All I knew was that he was there, that my back door was open and that my wife and little girls were in the house. And I don't know if he had a weapon on him or if the fact that he saw me meant he was going to pull a gun or something, God forbid. So to me, it became like a kill or be killed situation. And I said to him, I'm going to kill you. And I went after him. And uh, you didn't I put mean, your hands on him, though. You didn't put your hands on him. Well, I would have if I had caught him. It would have been a very bad day for both he and I, because he may have never seen the light of day again. And I may have never seen the light of day again. So, I just want to point out to listeners that Daniel is not a small dude. So take him seriously at his word. It's just such a terrible feeling when somebody comes onto your property and violates your space in that way and takes what belongs to you. It's, it's really a psychological trauma when somebody takes things that you worked hard for, especially like just a ran- it's just kind of random. It seems to me like it was just kind of random. And you have to wonder, like, wh- are we safe anywhere? Are we safe in our homes? Like, are we taking enough precautions to make sure these things don't happen? This is America. We're not supposed to have random people rolling up into our yard, stealing our, pro- our, our stuff. It's just very disappointing. It's insane. Um, you know, what gives me a lot of solace is that obviously, obviously to you, but I don't know if your listeners know this, that I'm a, a, a religious Jewish person who believes in God. And I, it, it helped me tremendously to keep repeating to myself throughout this after it happened that God is good. And this happened for a reason. And everything God does is good because God is good. And therefore, this must be something good as well. And something good will come out of this. And I don't have to understand God's plan. I may never understand it. Maybe if I'm if I'm really lucky or blessed, you know, I will get to understand it. But we don't always get to understand it. And and being part of the Jewish community here in Pico Robertson, and getting to talk to the incredible rabbis that I know, Rabbi Schaff, Rabbi Laniado, Rabbi Weiner, Rabbi Fsogi, they they all lent me such incredible wisdom and advice to help me get through this. And they were wow. all supportive to me. And, 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 and even like people in the community, I, I pray at this uh, place called the Sephardic Tent on Friday nights. And uh, someone I'm not, I'm not even sure who he was, but uh, he, he, he had heard about what happened because the news spread. And he said to me, he's like, it's a big kapara, big kapara. He, do you want to explain what a kapara? A kapara. A kapara is an atonement. Sometimes there's a decree in heaven that something has to take place. So the angels of mercy will plead on your behalf and actually change your fate. Now, they can't completely take away what God has in mind for you, but they can lighten the load by making it something, let's say, like gear and not, God forbid, your children or health or something that's you know, more important. But the angels negotiate it down to a misdemeanor. But at the end of the day, you know what the story here actually is? Just how the community is coming together. And I've seen, Kylie, from you that people have been responding online, donating to your GoFundMe. I mean, it's never fun to connect with people through tragedy. But Baruch Hashem, this is something that could be replaced. The gear is something that could be repurchased. And in general, I find that when people experience challenges and Hashem seems to give us a blow, there's something else around the corner. So while you may never get every single item back, you never know. Maybe this whole thing is part of a larger plan. Yeah, I, I certainly believe that. And um, yeah, we don't know what the best means, but Hashem does. And we just have to trust in that. Um, this community has been incredible. I don't know 
you know, people who experience crimes and they don't have a community, I feel very terrible for them because we've been getting meals, calls, emails nonstop. Everyone's been sharing it. So, you know, people come out of the woodwork for you when when you are are down. Everybody feels for you. So yeah, I, we're really yeah. Call you Stroller Brave and But what happened to the guy? Where is he now? Well, we'd love to know that. What do you he took off at that time? He took off? Yeah, he escaped me. He jumped over the wall in the alley. There's no away. footage of his face? Not that we're aware of. Although, Kylie mm-hmm. and I have been obsessively watching our security cameras, and we have identified someone in the neighborhood who we think it could be. So in L.A., we have D.A. Gascon, a very evil guy, who does catch and release. So even if they do a really bad crime... They right, there's really- no serious consequences. Yeah, so let's say we catch him and through us, and then he returns because he's mad at us. God that's forbid. why that's, that's why LA is in shambles. Yeah, God, God forbid. But literally, people in Beverly Hills are getting murdered in their fancy five, ten million dollar mansions because of these policies. Hopefully, we'll get yeah. rid. Of them. Enough is enough. Well, yeah. you could make Aliyah. I mean, there's only a couple of rockets falling this morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing you can't get used to. <laughs> like a light flurry. Yeah, like a light flurry. Is safer than america overall you don't have mass shootings or things like that people respect each other much more in israel we love it there we got engaged at the hotel so we would love to be there eventually um for now we don't know if we're going to stay in la because it's just so crazy so hard to think about leaving though because the community here is such a gem like we love our community so incredibly much and my my one of my brothers lives in Manhattan and he's witnessed this whole thing happen and he talked to me on the phone today and he said, You know what I realized from all this, Dan? I really need a community. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Yeah, you do. He's like, That's what's missing. Well, that's what I said about community. making Aliyah. The hardest part was actually leaving the people that I love and my shul and my school and my friends and my peers. Coming to Israel, of course, is a dream, but your Jewish community becomes your family. And at times like this is is really when you feel it. And I'm, I'm so glad that people have been able to help. I'm going to put a link in my show notes so people can contribute to the GoFundMe. $18, $36, $50, whatever they can manage just to help get you guys back on your feet. Um, tell me a little bit real quick about your upcoming film. I know the release date to that is around the corner, but now is your opportunity. So quickly pitch your film and let us know where we can watch it. Okay, so my film is Reconquistador. It is a documentary about me going back to Spain where my family was exiled from over 500 years ago during the Inquisition. And I do stand-up comedy in Barcelona and I explore my roots and I look at what it means to be Jewish and Sephardic and coming from Spain. And I think it's uh, hopefully an inspiring film and a funny film and people will love it. It's in the Marina Del Rey Film Festival. If you're in Los Angeles, uh, when? Um, in June, June 11th, but also book us at your synagogue or Jewish organization. Dan will come out and do kosher comedy, all clean, I love that. friendly, I... and you'll enjoy the film. You'll love it. I, said, I just call it comedy. It just happens to be kosher. I watched your film. I kosher. loved it. And I'm no. a harsh critic when it comes to comics. I absolutely appreciated it. It was just such a meaningful documentary, and, and I, I was full of heart and soul. So I, I'm going to encourage people to check it out. The website is reconquistadormovie.com. And my autobiographical comic books are at Fair Enough Amazing. Comic. I'm going to put the links, guys. Much hatzlacha. May we only only share good news. And may that bus be refilled with everything you need to create kosher, family-friendly content for me, my children, and our communities. It's really a blessing, and we appreciate it. Amen. We appreciate you Thank having you so us. Much. Thank you. 
I am really excited about my next guest, Rabbi Shia Hecht. I know the Hecht family my entire life. I am a Camp Amuna alumni. I started going to camp the year after Rabbi J.J. Hecht, the founder and director of the camp, passed away. He actually had a heart attack at dinner while all the campers were sitting there. I came the next year. I became very close to the Hecht family and Camp Amuna. And I just, you know, we weren't actually related, but it kind of felt like that. We are intertwined. There are Hechts married to Felix and Muchkins, and it's all, you know. Anyways, Rabbi Shia Hecht is a Jewish cult buster. And if you read his book that he wrote 30 years ago, you know how interesting his life is. Finally, he's back with another book, a collection of true stories of courage and hope. As a community leader, Rabbi Shia Hecht has seen it all, from glory to disaster and back again to greater glory. I love this book. I thought it was terrific. And when I saw it, I thought, wow, this is an opportunity for me to talk to him for the first time face-to-face in 18 years because I sat with him when I was in a crisis. And he helped me, and you're going to hear how. So without further ado, the rabbi in the red velvet kippah, Rabbi Shia Hecht. Rabbi Shia, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. What a treat. On another occasion, you're going to have to tell me why the Weekly Squeeze. (laughs) I get a lot of questions about that. We're squeezing out the juicy Uh, Jewish news. That's uh, really the idea. Rabbi Akiva, who knew how to squeeze out the good juice of that Jew. That's what what my idea was. Rabbi Akiva, spot on. (laughs) But let's talk to Rabbi Hecht. I got a copy of Whatever It Takes from uh, Mosaic Press. I read it in one sitting. I loved it. I thought I would reach out to you. We could talk about it a little bit. What is it, 30, 35 years since your last book? Well, I actually, my first book, we, we, the first printing we did was 1985. And then in about the year 2000, no, 2010, we worked on it. We fixed it over. We um, wanted to update it. But also we added a few stories. Oh, so I have to get another copy of that. Is that going to be through Mosaic Press also? That is through Mosaic Press. Hopefully they are. They printed some more, but I will get you a book, please God. All right. First of all, I'm holding the book here, whatever it takes. I love the cover. Did you? Were you involved in that? Um, well, I had to say okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> you said okay. It was and not, they... it was, that's right. It was, no, it was not my creativity. I, uh, Mosaic Press is the ones who really take credit. Uh, interesting thing is we're getting different feedback. Uh, the younger people, so now you know you're young, uh, the younger people love it. The older people question it a little bit. They thought maybe it's a little bit too hip and does it really give the message? The real question is, do you buy a book by its cover? And the answer is many people do. The question is, in this case, what is the cover really saying? Uh, in essence, as you know, we know each other for a long time, and uh, I, I must say, uh, the Hech family and the Felic family are forever and ever have been connected to each other. You know me for a long time. In essence, I believe that when any problem comes to your desk, if it comes to your desk, there is a reason God wants you to get involved in that case. And 99% of the time, there is Hatzlacha. Sometimes full Hatzlacha, because we really don't know what Hatzlacha is. Um, like in my days when I would deprogram, they said, did the person become from? I said, what's, what, what, what's that's the matter? My purpose was to get them out of the cult, out of the crazy religion that they embraced. So right. the word success is really measurable within itself. All right. So I want to talk about 
all that. So let's get into it topic by topic. The book is called Whatever It Takes. You share your exciting, interesting, and heartwarming experiences as a crisis counselor. A lot of emphasis on akarasataiv, bitachan, hashkachapratis. And that's what really stood out to me. I think this is a book that people can read if they don't know you or don't know what you've been up to or specifically have an interest in cults and all that. It's just a book that covers a lot of interesting things, including the wedding at the end, which I knew nothing about. I want to talk about it soon. By the way, I reached out to your sister, Rachel, and I said, because I had her on the podcast, um, she was speaking about Shaduchim, and I said, I need your, your brother's number to speak to him about the book. But she said, what book? I said, what do you mean? He didn't put in your family WhatsApp chat that there's a new book? Are you keeping this a secret? Like, how did she not know? First of all, I did not really uh, let my brothers and sisters know that the book was finished until I had books in my hand. So I understand that it was in the stores in Israel even before the shipment came to America. And I'm not even sure it's in the stores yet here in America. It is, it is, it is. Oh, it is, okay. I was told that this week it's supposed to be be there, but, you know, Hex Bookstore on Coney Island Avenue, my cousin still did not call me to tell me that he got copies. So (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, it's not in the bookstores as of yet. My siblings, I don't care what they tell you, they have heard my stories over the years when family gets together. That's true. Uh, Particularly my sister, Rachel, often says, so what are you up to now? What is some exciting case that you dealt with, a a family that you have been helpful to? And um, so when she's going to read the book, she'll say, oh, I know these stories. I heard the story before. My main audience, in truth, was really to Fuma people. And that's why I use a lot of... um, Hamish language. Hamish language. Hamish language is correct. And without a glossary, without translation, I go straight for terminologies and words that are used in our Hamish families. I also want to say at the same time is it's not really a family book. As uh, Feldheim, who's distributing it for us, and I'm really very proud that they are doing that, said, listen, I can only distribute this book if I put a label on the front that says sensitive material, mature audience. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I'm an avid reader. I've read a lot of Jewish books um, in the last few months that have question that have not questionable material, but material that maybe you wouldn't want in an eighth grade classroom. Uh, for example, this book here, the Reclaiming Dignity, it's called. It's on, on Sneas. I don't see a sticker on it, and I wouldn't say that I would hand it to my 13-year-old without worrying. I'm surprised. Look, the truth be told, and this is one of the some of the, my, my chapters, when I talk about abuse, and I'm talking about particularly the type of abuse that I talk about within the Jewish families. Yeah, and by the way, this is a family-friendly show, so we love all the Hamish language. You could keep it as Good. kosher and clean as possible, yeah. Um, so when we talk about abuse, first of all, there are many within even the Orthodox community and the Hamish Hasidic community that have, for many years, really questioned why are there not enough rabbis that speak out against these subjects? Why are there not enough rabbis who are willing to throw these people out of shul, put these people in jail, etc.? So we do tell a story that we were, Baruch Hashem, very successful. And by the way, if I wrote one story, know that there's tens of stories that back that up. And many of my stories I actually bring in different ports, parts from different stories. So it's not exactly, I don't stick exactly to the text because I actually add different parts that may be very, very important that we did it in one case, we couldn't do it in another case, uh, particularly dealing with um, New York City Police Department, New York City DAs, uh, the the federal prosecutors, etc. Yeah, there's no question about it that perpetrators within our Jewish community and halacha is 100% on our side to lock these people up. If a person is a danger to society, that's what you do. 
you lock them up. Of course, if you have the right evidence, then you can actually sentence them to whatever the sentencing is possible. And I want to remind that, my dear friends, that Torah is quite strict on these violations. Uh, yes, we don't have, we're not in power, we don't have a Jewish courts, but if the Jewish courts were in power, these guys, the end of the, these people, and I want to, when I say guys, I don't only mean uh, men within the community, but also women, uh, and some of these cases are actually are in the forefront, uh, others have come forward, um, other even rabbis have come forward of uh, time with uh, a young rabbi and who was abused as a child. So what I want to say is, number one is, every issue has to be talked about. And by the way, there's no right or wrong. Some people will say you have to deal it one way, seal the other ways. What age should we tell our children? What, should, what age we should pre prepare our children? There are many different um, thoughts, many different schools of, uh, of ideas. And Sometimes they're all right. More importantly is what I say to every parent is, you know your child, speak to your child. And if your child is not ready, so wait. And if they are ready, speak up. And if you're not the best one to do so, bring in a professional, bring in a relative, bring in a friend, bring in your rabbi, bring in your rabbi that can actually speak to them. And also I put a tremendous amount of uh, responsibility on our school system. So um, some of the schools don't like me because I say it as it is. It's not only do, do what it takes, whatever it takes, but also I say the way it is. We all have more responsibility. And by the way, we all have more influence than we think. You know, 20 years ago, would Hannah have thought that she's going to be able to sit behind the microphone and thousands <laughs> of people? And I remember um, 15 years ago or so when we met, uh, a little bit more than that, actually. And and people were telling me, do you realize the influence that this Hanala has to young high school girls in in Borough Park, in, uh, in Williamsburg, in uh, Muncie? And it is really, on one hand, a great privilege and something to be very proud of, but also think about the awesome responsibility of you making one song, of you singing one a song, or giving an introduction one way or another way of how that can change. And we know the music is everything. It's the tone we say things in that are so very Very important. powerful. Well, the written word, the spoken word, the sung word is very powerful. And you've made a career out of speaking to people and using words to help them, ultimately. I mean, obviously, you have other resources, but we are living in a post-Walder environment in post-Walder society, and the Rabbanim have come a long way in addressing issues that used to be absolutely taboo, but I still think there is a refined way of doing it. I don't think that we need to expose our kids to everything. I think podcasters should be very clear if the shows are explicit or if they have mature themes. Just because something is kosher doesn't mean that it's appropriate for every age, so I agree with you 100%. I mean, if you ask me, I think putting a sticker will make it sell more copies, but, you know, your call. <laughs> well, that's my call. It's their call. And uh, but, but I do agree with it. I must tell you, with my own grandchildren, uh, or to my children, I told them um, that parents' advisement of how, who, and I would say from 18 years and older. And by the way, when I rewrote my cult book, uh, I also, because originally when I wrote my cult book, I remember my son said to me, you know, Tati, at that time you said 13 and older. But when we rewrote it, we said 16 and older. For this book, I think 18 and older. Now, it doesn't mean 
that if you have a, a mature child who's 13, 14, 15, that they shouldn't read it. Or perhaps a child that you know was, was, was in fact exposed to some of these things and may have a feeling that, hey, leadership, Rabbonim, Mechanchim, uh, are not doing what they have to say, hey, you know what? There is one person that spoke out. There is one person that did. And I'm not the only one, by the way. There's some really great people out there who are out fighting the fight Walking the walk, talking the talk, but walking the walk. Oh yeah, and it's not a it's not an easy business. I mean, you've seen things that would make most people's hair stand up on, on stand up straight, and ultimately, we have to be realistic about the issues that we're facing, or else we can't address them. So, you know, the only way to write this book is to be one hundred percent honest, and it might raise a few eyebrows when people realize this is actually going on in our communities. But like you said, it's refreshing to hear that it is being addressed, and now that we have it in book form. Um, I think that message will get further and further. But let's talk about some of the specifics in the book that you were privy to, some scenarios, some situations, some experiences as a Hecht, as a Lubavitcher, as a Crown Heitzer, as somebody in, involved in this line of work. I vaguely remember the Crown Heights riots. I know that for Crown Heitzers, that was a major turning point in the African-American and, and Chabad relationship, or whatever, the Jewish relationships in Crown Heights. You know, we, we're, we're coming, not, I don't know to say full circle, but we're definitely dealing with those issues still. I saw that Al Sharpton was invited to the White House. Um, I think Susan Rice spoke on the topic of United Against Hate. And h- how does it make you feel as somebody who went through that? You write about it in the book and saw how he, Al Sharpton specifically was actively involved in exacerbating the situation. How does it make you feel to know that that whole situation has kind of been washed away like it never happened? I mean, you were there. It was pretty intense. 1991, August 19th is an infamous day. We'll go down and not only in the history of New York and in the history of Corn Heights, but in, really in the history of Hasidic Jews and particularly for Lubavitch. Uh, a few shout outs when we talk about that. First of all is our number one brethren, our number one group that came to stand with us during those days was Satma. Satma came from Williamsburg with van loads every single night to help our people within our community. When we were, when we were under attack, the ADL didn't do what they were supposed to do. Federation didn't do what they were supposed to do. Liberal Jews were telling us the things that we were doing wrong. We were living with the blacks um, for many, many years. In the 1960s, and uh, the late 1960s in particular, early 1970s, all other Jews ran away from Crown Heights. We're the only one who stayed. So now it's 20 years later. We have somewhat of a relationship going on. Um, Yanko Rosenbaum is stabbed, dies in the hospital six hours later, uh, and enough bling to go around. By the way, only one arrest is made. There are still still 19 people out there or thereabout uh, that should have been arrested. And let me tell you something. Mel McNelson, uh, he took the rap, but there were others. Maybe he was uh, kind to his friends. They didn't want to give up names. But there's no reason why the police did not do their diligence to make more arrests. Um, We really put the pressure at that time more so on City Hall than we did on the police department. The police felt that the police department were doing their job, but they were getting instructions from City Hall. That, in essence, what took place throughout those three days of rioting. They were said, oh, let the young blacks, let them vent. Well, vent meant turning over police cars, lighting, lighting police cars. Yeah, absolute the, violence. Yeah, absolute violence. Absolute it was chaos. Violence. It was terrifying. It was a very, very of bad, course, dark week. Of course, within our community, there are those who called it riots. There were those who called it uh, a pogrom. Demonstration. Oh, but, a pogrom. No, a pogrom. 
But one thing is for sure, it was not just uh, up, you know, some type of an unrest that they that the press or like or the city hall wanted us to think. What's was, your relationship with Al Sharpton today, though? After all these years, have you seen him since? I must tell you that yes, I I, I just finished my book, and I hope it's going to be a, a, a bestseller. But um, a little bit about a year ago, there was a book written about my father, and right now, with the passing of my mother, just about uh, sixteen months ago. Please God, they're working on a, a book about Rebetzin Hach. Rebetzin Hach had an, a meeting with Al Sharpton and stood up to Al Sharpton. But I can't tell you the whole story. I did meet Al Sharpton on a number of occasions. In essence, we believe that during the three days of the riots, um, we say clearly that he is responsible for some of the unrest that took place, some of the riots that took place. He's now, a provocateur. if you want to somehow argue it, one thing is for sure. Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton, you could have quieted things down. So let's assume for one minute, and you know, according to Judaism, if you have the potential to stop a riot and you don't, you have the responsibility on your hands. So for sure, people know, he could have come in here right away the first night and said, listen, guys, Calm down. It was only a car accident. Yes, we, we cannot be, behave the way we're behaving. He did not do that. And there are those who heard him, were on the streets with him, my brother included one of them, out there on the streets, hearing him incite a riot, meaning telling his people, talking against the Jewish people. Um, and by the way, most of this has been proven by the Jagenti report and proven by many people within the press. They were saying is that, hey, all the money from government was only going to the Jewish people. The fact is that the Jews were not getting their share from government. The blacks were not getting their, their, their fair, fair share from government. And this was not only city government, state government, and the federal government. They were not taking care of our needs. What right. do we say when we say about needs? First thing is safety. If you don't have a safe community, if you can't walk outside in the street, if you can't go to Hasanis and, and, and Bar Mitzvahs, and if you, can, you can't go to, you know, L'chaims and, and, and other occasions, then there's a problem. But what's and, going on in Crown Heights now? I mean, uh, uh, we've we've come a long way. We've worked on those relationships. I mean, the Rebbe was integral in that as well. But here we are in 2023. My husband was in Brooklyn. He said, you could barely walk the streets after dark. I was mugged in Crown Heights, but even when I was living there... I still felt like the streets were mine. I don't know. I, I, I'm, from your reflection, after all these years, after all the work put in, after all the relationships, the meetings, the connections, wh wh what's the situation in Crown Heights now between the Jews and the black people? You ask a very good question, but let's just uh, eight years of Giuliani, things were great. And by the way, I'm not right. talking about Crown Heights. That's when black I lived there. City, crime was down. And then, surprisingly enough, Bloomberg did even a better job. He built on what... Giuliani has accomplished, and things were even safer. And unfortunately, the eight years of uh, and right now, the fact is that anti-Semitism is up not only in New York, by the way, not only in Crown Heights, but across across the board. The problem right now is I don't look at it as a Crown Heights problem, although yes, there have been attacks. Um, recently, one of uh, the victim's father came to me and says, look, what we, we wrote about it, but nothing is really being done. Our kids have to walk through the streets. Again, if you're walking on Eastern Parkway or on, or on Kingston Avenue, you feel somewhat safe. There's enough traffic. But if you're walking on other streets, which are more quieter streets, you have to say to yourself, are there enough, is there enough presence simply of the cops? If the 
cars will simply be around. Or the, the guy, the, the cop on the beat will uh, do his job. I think it can make be a tremendous change. Besides yeah, well, now, that, now the cops are scared to work. Well, that's a separate issue also. I mean, I was just listening today to a radio show and they were saying that thousands of New York cops retired or, or quit in the last year. And that's why they're having the issues on the train station that became the wild, wild west. And it's, you know, this murder that happened now or this this. I don't death. want to spend too much time in doom and gloom, but let me just say, um, the problem is that the cops are saying themselves, we make the arrest, and the, and the, unfortunately, the court system is not doing their share. They're really, it's a revolving door, you get in, you get out, and that's it. They're not asking for bail for these people, they did away with bail, uh, unless it's a very terrible crime, but all these, first of all, quality of life crimes are being overlooked, for sure. But even if the guy's a real criminal, they're basically, cops are saying they're taking their time simply because they don't feel they have a partner in the court system. And it's very, very hard. If I'm going to do my job, I'm going to make the arrest, and you're going to just let the guy out the back door, why would I kill myself to make the right, arrest? Right, right. There's, cha- there's a chain of, a series of events that are not taking place the way they should, and, and there's a number of things that need to be changed. This is well, not like a, a quick mandate. From 1991 to 1998, uh, 99 to 99, for roughly that eight-year period, I worked for, first of all, the first four years and then the, the, another four years together with Edithon of Jackson from Medgar's College. And a lot was done in Cron Heights for understanding, for peace, for friendship, uh, and safety. A lot was done. The police have been working with us really, really, very, very nicely and really did their job. And the leadership within the black community, talking about the uh, the galochim, the priests that we have met, the mostly Protestant, but the, the, the priests that we met within the community, the clergy that we have met within the community, the elected officials that we've met in the community, all black have really come and met us halfway. And I think that that was a tremendous thing. Unfortunately, in the last few years, it's going down again. And we're hoping, the truth of the matter is, um, our mayor, our present mayor, is uh, was a cop. He was a cop on the beat. He was he, he knows the system very, very well. So Eric Adams, when, he, when we voted him in, we really thought there would be a change for the good. And that uh, change has not come about as of yet. I personally still have faith that he will do. He's actually, he has gone up to Albany because he's fighting the court system and he's fighting with um, the uh, assemblymen, uh, assembly and, and members of uh, the Senate to make laws that will, in fact, lock the uh, perpetrators, lock back the bad guys up. All right. I'm happy to hear that. All right. Let's shift gears to the topic of cults. Obviously, your first book was called Confessions of a, of a Cult Buster. Yes, I feel like we were in a different uh, era now with the cell phones. On the same token, I think that we have bigger issues because of technology. So let's discuss a little bit about what has changed, um, let's say, since the 80s when cults were more popular. And, but then again, today we have Naturi Karta, Leif Tahor, Messianic Jews, you know, women in Maya Sha'arim wearing c- complete coverings like, like Arab women. Do we still have an issue with cults is that is indoctrination into these extreme groups still happening left and right has it changed since the 80s and are you addressing it differently now that we're online and while you're on that topic being that people's kids are online if there is talk of something going on how do people know like how do people know if their kids are involved in something absolutely terrible i'm not talking about looking at bad things i'm talking about involved with bad people who are trying to brainwash them and and 
change the way they think. Okay, you you put down so many different questions. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Let's start from the beginning. Let me just how, start the following. How has cults changed? Yeah, how has it changed? But kind of, I think let's first start the the first question. First question okay. is as follows: I am a Orthodox Jew living in Brooklyn. I'm a Hasidic Jew living in Brooklyn. I'm a Hamisha Jew living in Brooklyn. Today, a new the new style, a Hamisha. Or if you talk in Israel, that I'm in the Haredi community. Do I have to worry about my kid getting involved, getting influenced by some type of cult leader? And the answer is yes. Oh. And it may not be the big cult. It may not be the cult of thousands of people. But from time to time, I get telephone calls from a particular person, either man or woman, rabbi or rebbitzin, that has a cult-like grasp on people and telling the people, number one, to disown their families. When you talk about Le- Leif Tahar, Leif Tahar is a terrible, terrible cult. First of all, the things that were going on that Hellbrand himself uh, did to to uh, to young children is terrible within itself. And talking about from Torah law, boy, he, he, he would have been finished a long time ago. But can Fruma Eden, can Hamish Eden be caught up in something? The answer is yes. We're all looking for answers. We're all looking for sometimes more. And if we're not fulfilled with our learning and 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 our doing of mitzvahs, and of course there are e- easy formulas, and I think as particularly as a chabadnik, what we have to have, we have to learn learn. Of course, daven like a mensch, learn our shiurim, have have a mashpia, and once in a while to show what to fabrengen to realize I'm a part of a community and I have a responsibility to me and also need to draw from the community. Some of us say, you know, I'm, how many people do you know in your circle? And this is, you know, when I say to you, I'm talking about the thousands of listeners that will listen to the podcast. How many do you know that don't go to shul on Shabbos? How many Jews do you know? I'm talking about men. And of course, women is also important. Well, don't go to shul during the week. How many? They don't belong to a community. So you're saying Therefore, you need to fill up that emotional space, that spiritual space, or else it's going to have, you're going to have a void that somebody else is going to fill. And if you're going to be lonely, the wrong person can come along and fill that void and then really capture your brain. Now you think, oh, I'm too smart for that. The answer is no. And one of the stories that I do write about is the call of, well, we, we I forgot the name that we, we write about, but a particular group that yes, was- Yes, the call of the chauffeur. To, was geared to- um, religious Jews, and today yeah. they still operate with another name. Jewish yeah, I looked up the Life Choice Seminars. I remember when my sister called me up and she asked me if I want to go with her, and I was immediately like taken aback because for me to get such deep inspiration, you have to be really, really careful about the source. Ah, there were so many red flags. I just, I just knew there was an issue with it. I called my cousin Leifke Kaplan. He said he wasn't sure. People are looking into it, and whatever, whatever. And then you put out a statement, and everyone knew that this was essentially a cult-like environment, although it seemed, like you said, to be pariv, it was rooted in sources that are not in line with our hashkafais. And those are... Remember, every religion in the world teaches good things. And or as I write in my first book, I say, listen, I can challenge you. If you show me some good in the world, I'll show it to you where you find it in Torah. But 
when they put in these subtleties, and particularly control, or really what the biggest problem is, and let's not talk about the one I, the cult that I actually wrote about, but if we talk about other places like Leif Tahar and other places like that, that I'm presently dealing with, the first thing they do is isolation. First thing is like this, your parents are not holy enough. Your rug is not smart enough. Your community is not good enough. Therefore, when you join our community, and of course the cult leader, either being a, a man or a woman, was saying that the Rebbitzin is going to basically make the decision for you. And by the way, they don't only make the decision for you what you have to do in your external life, but also in your personal life. They're making decisions for the people. It is amazing. You would think that, yeah, well, I would never submit myself for uh, advice on my personal life from an outside person, allow, allow them to tell us how to live. Well, guess what? This is happening every day, and it is happening in the Fruma communities of Yerushalayim. I'm not going to talk about others, you know, Beit Shemesh or, or other places like that. These things, unfortunately, are happening. And, are they recruiting uh, online? Are, are they are they scouting kids through social media, through apps? Before social media, how you'd have to roll up into one of their joints by accident. And now, like, you could literally become completely a member of a cult without ever leaving your house. Yes. Okay. So uh, when we when we talk about uh, social media and we talk about the Internet, I think we talk about an entire new phenomenon that, you know, 50 years ago, uh, our, our Rebbes and, and, and our leaders, our Rosh Hashivas, did not have to talk about. The fact is, um, the Internet is a bad place. Now, hey, that's coming from a Lobotica. As a Chabadnik, yes, they're going to ask me, do I use the internet? Of course I use the internet. Are we not presently using the internet in one way or another? Yes. But we know that there is a cornerstone teaching within Hasidus based on Kabbalah. Whatever God created in one, there is a mirror for the other. A double-edged sword. place of Kedusha, has a potential to go the other way. And unfortunately, when we are allowing our nine-year-olds, our 12-year-olds, our 15-year-olds to browse the web completely unwatched, and first of all, I've written many, many different articles at different times and, and spoken out against uh, the internet. Um, as it happens, I must say, the people around me, close to me in my life, know that I am not uh, tied into, I, I know the power, and I know how the beauty, and I and have used it. But, but you're not on, point, you're not on TikTok. <laughs> when, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You talk about TikTok. TikTok, for instance, came from China. In China, it's illegal for your 15 year old to go on TikTok. But yet, they're feeding it to us. Yeah, they censor it in China. Yeah, yeah. TikTok. yeah. So right. the computer is a. Is, I tell people, you want to email me? I have an email address. I check my email once a week. That's it. Once a week. I'm not tired. I don't wake, don't wake up middle of the night. Sometimes I get someone uh, 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 an email. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I say to be the first thing, before I even get into the issue, what were you doing up 3 o'clock in the morning? So everybody can, <laughs> I send emails at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's when New York is awake. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. So you have, a, you have a reason. My point is like this. The, the internet is a place. And when I've spoken uh, different places and written about it, I say, listen, if you want to use the internet, perhaps the best uh, security is a buddy system, which means simply I am able to check exactly what you go on and you're able to check exactly where I go on. 
You're saying not, not with your kids, with, with a friend, with a peer. This doesn't have to be for a family, right? When you know, ask me someone that you know is going to check up on you. It's not that, you know. Uh, you know I know, but you could delete and hide things too. Kids are two steps ahead of us. It's not so push it. Correct, correct. And there are also different. I, uh, quite a while ago, about 10 years ago, I met with a Malamed, uh, excuse me, a, a Manahal from one of the yeshivas within, uh, within the community. And he said to me, he said, Shia, you know, I, I want to share this story because I think it's very, very important. I know you're involved in various different things. He said, I want to tell you something. The other day, a parent came to me and I told the parent, listen, we're having problems with your son. Eight, this is an eighth grader. I'm telling you he's going on the computer to wrong places. Father said, listen, I, I can swear for my son, you're making a big mistake. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a firewall to put up. This will basically track everything where your computer goes. It's a, it's costs only $75 to buy. I'm going to buy, pay for it. And it's, if we find that your son will let it run for 48 hours, if your son does not go to any place bad, uh, I will pay for that firewall. If, if it has, you pay me back the money. Okay. He says, and he says within 24 hours, the man called me. He says, Rabbi Simpson, I must tell you, I am, I am embarrassed. I must tell you, I tip my hat to you. I thank you. And he spoke about different ways of how to see, to sit down and talk to a son, to explain to a son that this is a uh, a two-edged sword, mm -hmm. that if you don't use it properly, it can be very, very dangerous. So oh, yeah. knowing where our kids are at is a very, very important point. Very important. Yeah, I, I end up uh, bumping into this kind of stuff all the time. Like if you Google something about Yiddishkeit, you could end up on a, on a Messianic Christianity Jewish website. And that that's also, they are very, very motivated, I should say, motivated to, to, to get you in their clutches. And I had a conversation with Tuvia Singer. I'm sure you know who he yeah, is, yes. an anti-missionary. I didn't end up airing it because for a number of reasons. And, and he was speaking about how the prime minister's wife was involved with Jews for Jesus. The, the all that drama she ended up suing him it was a whole parsha whatever whatever but that brought me into this realizing how susceptible kids are even if their intentions are good even if they want to they're, they're trying to connect and to learn and to grow they can end up in the clutches of something so really, within really Chabad we say even if you're watching a Rebbe video on YouTube but along your side something's gonna pop up and you know what the word what you really need to use they're aggressive it's not a, aggressive. They're determined. They're aggressive. They will get into your kishkes. They will do. They will first of all deceiving. They don't say who they are. You yeah. make them many times. The title may sound very Jewish. Right. And they don't use specific words. They use they 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 try to like soften the language so that you don't see a, a word and say, oh, that's Christianity. It's a and complete it's method of how these things come on. And by the way. Once you hit one of them, then it's going to stay in the memory of your computer for a long time. There is a real problem. I had a speaking uh, engagement uh, today to speak to a set of parents of Bali Chuba, which was kind of interesting. And the conversation went to AI uh, and how the world is now going to change. But if the computer can do thinking almost like a young being, I'm not, and I said almost, that's a, in, in big letters, almost. But if they can start figuring out, if I can understand, if I can know what flavor of ice cream that you, that you like and, and what type, type of texture ice cream that you like, and then I can start feeding you things along Oh, you can way. personalize the experience like nothing else. Yeah. So the computer within itself 
is a very, very um, dangerous place to go. Although I'm not knocking the fact that that has great, great potential. You can go to very, very holy places. And there is so much out there, which is, listen, think. Uh, one of my gurus, Rabbi Manus Friedman, has over 700 YouTubes out there. He has millions of hits to think that I am a rabbi of a little shul. Today I can speak to a million people or five million people. And again, I really go amazed when you see Avram a Free comes out with a new song. Five million hits. <laughs> You're like, who are these people? Where are there five million people who know Avram Freed? <laughs> think about the influence that you now have through someone singing your song or someone to, to, to repeating your story. It is really, to a certain extent, what we refer to as Mashiach's times, meaning because the potential is really, really great. Anyone, all you need is a, is a microphone, all you need is a computer, and you can build the world, or God forbid, the opposite. Destroy the world, right. And we have to watch out because our kids are, are, are the world. They're our future. Are the women in Meishar wearing those burqas and... and, and things on their faces. Are they caught up in a cult? It's like nobody seems to be doing anything. The group seems to be ever expanding. I'm just curious if that's something that's ever crossed your threshold. I I was standing with someone from Toldus Aaron. Uh, I visited the Toldus Aaron Rebbe a number of times and one of his uh, one of his uh, outreach workers, I think I can call him that, one of he's not an actual gabai but works for uh, for the institution. Um, at one point, I said, "What do you say about uh, these ladies?" He says, sugar. They're totally crazy." So I understand if the but fanatic are, are is they calling... crazy? Are they crazy, or are they being manipulated to to, to dress like that? A lot, which happens all the time. You see it by the Mormons. I mean, that they it control the women and what they wear. It's a hundred percent that cult tactics are being used with these women. A hundred percent. The question again is. How crazy are these people before these people before they start versus afterwards? How uh, controlled are they in the detailed life? That's a question. The first thing is they won't have to sit down. You can't have a conversation with them. They won't answer your current conversation. I right. said, listen, if you if you if they open up dialogue, we can find out more. Um, you say about what can be done. Uh, there are people doing when it affects their own family, and even then, because of the isolation part. There's very little that can be done, just like Lev Tar, who is very, very difficult to actually to break through. I've sent personally when they were in Mont when they were in Canada in Saint Agathe, uh, I've sent different people to, to try to get in at different times, and they were very, very, very well protected, you know, uh, and it was very, very hard. Well, in general, whenever it comes to religion, people are very testy because there are people who assume that, that Haredim are involved in a cult and they're being coerced to cover their hair with a wig or, or wear oppressively heavy clothing in the summer. So it's tricky to start pointing fingers and say, you're in a cult, you're in a cult, you're in a cult. And, and I understand the the hesitation at addressing it. You know you know what they say, the, the, whoever's firmer than you is crazy and whoever's more modern than you is crazy. So I don't know. But at the same time, you see children in the summer dressing like little Arabs. You have to wonder, like, should I get involved? <laughs> should I say something? Should I, you know, push back? And and of course, and of course, we're dealing we're dealing with the erasure of women uh, on the on the main stage as well now, and that all is interconnected because when we become too pious and too extreme, we get to a point where it, it just becomes the erasure told, of women. 
I've been told by my colleagues and even one or two of my teachers that I'm too quick to make a prediction, but I'm going to do it anyways. The stories for these people will still come out. It's, right. we're, we're not at the end of the chapter. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's what I'm afraid of. Right. I'd like to shift to talk about some of the happy Please. things I write in my Please, book. Please, Yala, let's do it. Some of the that take place, some of the successes that take yes, place. Yes, joyful um, happiness. And, Go for and, it. And, and the first thing is, you know, I have a story um, which I think is really a fascinating story. Actually, it's broken out to, to a few different stories of simply a, fo- a fellow following Jewish law, going to Besden rather than taking another uh, option and how it turned out. Now, as a rub, I wear different hats and sometimes you have to get involved in the Dittorah. So one of the people that I work with, actually a, a Sakmar Hasid by the name of Rab Shmiel Free. Shmiel Free is known uh, he lives today in Barapak. He's known throughout the Haredish world as a great Toyin and a great Dayan and participates in Dine Teda and also has a great insight, by the way, particularly where my love is in Shalom Bias. He has helped many, many people in Shalom Bias before he really got it, became a Toyin. He was used to help families get together and then he realized that women more than men are not being heard in Dine Teda and therefore he got involved. We talked about over 20 years ago. He does great work. So I said to him one day, tell me what is one of your greatest stories that happened? To, I, remember, I know we're limited on time. Make it very, very quick. Okay. He dealt with a diamond dealer from 47th Street who came with the story and said, listen, um, I was sent to you by my rug. I deal with diamonds. A chassidish guy came in one day and said he'd like to sell my diamonds. And um, everything is not done on credit over there. Uh, con- concession, you you give them guy, write it down, you write it, you write a little settle, they sign a little settle, and the guy went out. To make a long story short, he took fifty thousand dollars, came back, paid the money, took more diamonds, a hundred thousand dollars, hundred fifty thousand dollars. He was up to over a million dollars of schreda that he took from this, meaning diamonds that he was out there officially selling on the street. And he comes in one day, dishuffled, torn coat. He comes into the guy and says. I was robbed. I was coming here with all my all the money coming to bring to you. And I walked through uh, Central Park. This goes back uh, to the 70s when Central Park was not to what it is today. And uh, I was robbed. And therefore, I had no choice. It's the end of the 70s, I think. And he says, I was robbed. And I don't have the money for you. So he he actually called his rav. His rav said, listen, Go to Shmuel Freed. He's a he's a a, a a Toyin, and he's probably the best guy you should go to. He's like a Jewish lawyer, and he'll take care of your case. Shmuel said that I took the case. We went to Sachta uh, Sarabonim, which is the most Haredisha um, Bezdin within New York, um, stationed in uh, housed in Williamsburg, and the dictator went on. And of course, all the Rabbanim saw clearly that this uh, diamond merchant, or whatever he calls himself, was simply a liar. The salesman was a liar. He basically stole the the diamonds. And um, they realized that they couldn't really get him. And they said, listen, for what you were going to do, we're going to make you take a Shvua de Araisa. Now, Shvua de Araisa is a very, very serious Shvua. And God forbid, if you swear falsely on a Shvua de Araisa, Terrible things can come upon your family, on you and your family. And um, they had no other choice but to put the guy into a corner and think that maybe he would admit, and he still held strong, they're going to do a sure that I said. They gave the guy one week 
to come back next it was just a Tuesday night. Next Tuesday night, you're going to come back here and you're going to make a sure that ice. And that's what he said he was going to do. Camille Fried goes out with his client uh, after the entire day. He says, listen, we got what we wanted, but let me tell you something. I'm very much afraid that this guy will lie and will take the shoe that I said and lie. And terrible things will come upon him and his family. He says, Chaimo, the guy's, he says, I'm telling you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't push him till the end. Do not ask him to take the shoe that I said. He says, listen, I I appreciate, but I have my own rub. He sent me to you. I hear your advice. I'm going to go to him. To make a long story short, he goes back to his rub. His rub tells him also, do not pull through till the end, because after all, you're not getting your money back. It was a million two. You're not getting your money back. Hashem will figure out some way to give you your money back. You should not push it. To make a long story short, the Monday before that Tuesday, he has to meet clients, uh, people that he's doing, doing business with in Atlantic no other place in Atlantic City. And they met in one of the hotels. Well, they have that meeting in the, in the hotels. The meeting is over. And uh, one of a non-Jewish fellow says to him, you know, Mr. Chaim, are you going to play? Are you going to bet? Are you going to uh, gamble? He says, uh, no, it's not the, so, you know, you're here in, in Atlantic City. Put it, put, you know, see what happens. He goes down to the slot machines and he came back, he said, you know, I'm going to spend $10 on the slot machine. He puts in one dollar, he loses it, another dollar, he loses it. His last dollar he puts in, pulls the lever down. Ding, 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 ding. Lights start flashing. The sirens are playing. A million dollars? He wins a million two. A million two. What a miracle. He just made a decision that he's not going to make the guy do his word that I saw. And he said one of the things that Fried says. He says when it came to the dentator, and when he came, they sort of, the guy says, he's willing to swear. He says, no, I'm not asking you to swear. And he says, by the way, I got my money back. And each one sitting around in the pirate said, whose miracle was this that created this miracle? But, you know, when you follow Torah and you do what the Rabbanim tell us and you follow Bezdin, Hashem has ways to take care of us. And this is a really a fascinating story. And by the way, I'm not going to give half it, but I then tell two other stories of people who followed again along with what there was and how they were rewarded in a very, very beautiful way. Yeah, that's why it's a very feel-good story. Like I said, a lot of Ashgacha Prata stories, a lot of stories where you yourself didn't know how the situation would resolve and then the Abishter sent to Yeshua. And I just want to end on a, a feel-good note You know, while we're at it. I came to you over 18 years ago in a crisis, okay? So I didn't reveal to my audience the details of, of, of that specific crisis, but, you know, my husband and I, we wanted to get married, and it was a struggle, and we weren't, we were, we were from two different worlds, and we sat in your You're office. very brave. I don't know if I'm brave or crazy. Today I say that I'm brave because I, you know, I chose right. At the time I was just young and crazy. But the, the, obviously there was more involved than meets the eye. But just to keep things related to this conversation, I met with you and your job was to convince me not to marry my spouse. <laughs> and I remember thinking, how is Rabbi Shia going to pull this off? And you looked at me and then you looked at him and you said, I understand why she wants you. You're, you seem like a lovely guy, but do you know anything about her family? Because I know her family for a long time and I know you love her, but you know, when you marry someone, you marry their family and maybe that's something you should take in consideration. <laughs> and you kind of addressed it from a different angle because everyone had been harassing me 
to leave him. You were the first person to actually speak to him as a human being and say, let's talk about if this shidduch is right for you. And that really helped Rafal think through a couple of things that he was uncertain about. We still got married and he made the right choice and all. But another thing I want to I point out is that you had a diagram where you showed my husband and I in a circle and then you showed all the intertwining circles that were the other relationships in our life that at the time we had cut out thinking it was us against the world. And you explained to us that in your experience you have seen so many couples fall apart because the other circles that are supposed to be part of their network were missing. And that stuck with me forever. And now when you expressed it in that way, that when I was sitting in your office, you recognized the potential that I had and how important it was for you to help us, not just so you can call up my father and my mother and say, situation handled, you know, check, but because you recognized my potential and what I still had to give out to the universe and you wanted that to go well for me. So I have held those two things with me, the circles and the fact that you looked at my husband in the eye and you said, let's see if you're going to be happy in this relationship. Um, And here we are all these years later and we indeed have all those intertwining circles, strong, solid, we are thriving, my husband and I, Baruch Hashem and Eretz and it was um, with your help. So I just wanted to be able to tell you that person. And I greatly appreciate that. And yes, I I refer to it as the seven circles of relationships. And um, I'd actually, if I would have known, I would have prepared uh, a flyer. A diagram? (laughs) Send it to me. Send it to me. I'll put it in the WhatsApp group. Send it to me. When I I lecture, um, uh, I, I talk about the fact that there are basically seven relationships. Yourself being yourself and spouse being the most that actually really works out according to Kabbalah, according to seven spheres. Yeah, which seven's right. a holy number. Yeah, yeah it's a mystical yeah. number. So, so Malchus is, is self and spouse. So that that's that, that's a center. But many many people get married. They think that well, if we have this great strong unit, we don't need the other relationship. We don't need parents. We don't need friends. We don't need siblings. We don't need our children sometimes in, in, in cases. Well, we don't need uh, our students or we don't need our friends. The answer is no. To be a wholesome human being, you would need to know that there are seven different relationships. Um, I want to thank uh, my assistant there for bringing it. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> yes. Um, so we have here, I hope uh, you're able to I see it. I can see it. I can see it. Okay. So. In center is self and spouse. Uh, on the right hand side is parents. Every per- if you're here, you have parents and loving parents. And one of the things that we learn from our parents is unconditional love. Uh, then we have we move to the to the left side, which is which is gavura, and there we have teachers. Teachers teach us respect, which is very important. And then we have our siblings. Our sibling is in in between. It's a question: your older brother, your younger brother, your older sister, your younger sister, etc. And then, of course, we go down to the right-hand side, which is Netzach, our friends. Our friends, we know, sometimes will go beyond even blood relatives. We go to the left. You, as a teacher, we are all teaching, helping, inspiring others. And then the center um, bottom, where you, as a parent. Uh, So these are seven different relationships. And we have to understand, within our relationship, the ultimate relationship of self and spouse, we need to remember that all those other six relationships play a role depending on what type of parents I have that is going to say what type of husband I'm going to be or what type of wife I'm going to be um and my relationship with my with my sister uh is going to and and brothers are going to also tell me what type of spouse I'm going to be particularly if 
from instance, when we have the more ex extreme cases what we have now, where someone was abused by a teacher, God forbid, that unfortunately can affect the marriage. Right. With all friends or, or whatever it may be. So, yeah, there are seven different relationships. Those relationships are extremely, extremely important. Yeah, you showed me this 18 years ago. It's crazy. One second. I, I remember them being interconnecting, but now I'm looking at it and it looks like a flower. So in my mind, I thought, oh, wow, that's a beautiful flower. And when you have all the petals, well, you can grow. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I also, to be that you mentioned, I also wrote a little booklet on um, successful, successful dating. dating. Yeah. And I must say that I had, in my own little way, a tremendous amount of response about this book particularly from young people. This book, again, is geared for a specific audience. This is written for a from a person in the dating process, what I call the black hat community. So yes, it includes Chabad um, and, and it includes anyone who's willing to go along with the system of what we have dating. That means you're basically, you're working through a shotgun. I mean, I touch thing, things, even you don't have a shotgun, going through a shotgun. And of course, um, um, the, 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 they're very seven steps and you go out a few times and then you have a chayim and, and move on to marriage. Uh, the interesting thing is in my summary over here where my list, my checklist, if you're ready to say yes, that checklist is something which is very, very important. And this is regardless of how you met and regardless how you got to where you go. If you want to move forward, you have to know, remember something that these are things very, very important. One of the really cornerstones of Torah is that we have to be giving people. We can't be selfish. Yet, there's one time in our lifetime that we have to be selfish. And that's what we're in the dating process. You have to be selfish. One and, second, uh, I want to go through the checklist now. I'm curious if we made the cut. <laughs> your, your checklist has been checked. It's all. But uh, I, I must say, mm. often when people come and call, call me because of my booklet, they'll say to me, listen, I'm dating. We got to a, a, an imp impasse. I can't seem to go forward. I don't know what... And I say, listen, take this list out and simply work it out. But it's very simple. Write your strengths down on a paper. Write your weaknesses down on a paper. Write the person, the potential person. Write their strengths and weaknesses and see if they match and see if you complement each other and see if when you're going to move forward that, in fact, it's going to uh, bring you uh, forward. And right. just for a moment, being that we said the other things, this is... Yeah, uh, let's do it. Book, do it cold both cold cold yeah. Same keeper, uh, same keeper all these years later. Yes, yes. And I used to want to, I, a little shout out to Chaim Korfin, who was really the writer uh, and genius behind my, my stories. And I was going to ask you, by the way, if you are the actual writer or you hired a ghostwriter and you kind of shared your stories, because um, I know the Hex are great storytellers. I just didn't know if you were a, yeah. a poetic no, writer. <laughs> Chaim Korfin, and there's a little blurb about him in, in the back of both the, both the books. He, he was really the genius. He actually um, came from Hollywood and, and, uh, and from a previous life on a, a, a writing um, telephone, no, radio ads uh, with humor. And that's why he, he really kept his style. It's the perfect relationship, you and Chaim, because the book has all the energy and positivity. And like I said, the, the faith, which I loved throughout every single story. And at the same time, it's beautifully written. It's beautifully expressed. It's fresh. It's interesting. It's current. I actually love the cover. I think it's very 
modern. It reminds me of like the ghetto in a sense, but at the same time, the colors just make it vibrant. Like you're in the ghetto, but you're going to bring the color. You're going to keep the color. You're going to keep it exciting. And and, and the it's, color it's, to me was very important. I'm just yeah. going to end with one little story, and you may have heard the story even before you read it. And that's yeah. about Simcha Zirkin. Uh, with the Simcha Zirkin is asked to bring a crown for a Torah a breastplate for the Torah and the pointer for the Torah across the board at the Canada. To make a long story short, he wants to cut the red tape, get to the front of the line because of travel. And he tells his driver, pull over to the side. He puts the crown on, puts his talus on, puts his breastplate on and the pointer. And because he lived in Tunisia for a while, he came with his Tunisian passport and told the borderlines that he is a king. And that's why he's wearing a crown. <laughs> and uh, so there he is. Could imagine the guy is wearing a Sinfatora crown, a breastplate, and a pointer. And they he's come up to the Literally board. what the king was wearing yesterday, by the way, <laughs> at his yes, inauguration. Yes, yes, totally. <laughs> If you saw that, England and London, yes, that my favorite story was Escape from Leningrad. I really think it's worth buying the book just to read the the story that this rabbi retells that you that you put in that you included here. Such a powerful, amazing story that I don't think anyone's ever heard before. So I highly recommend it. I'm going to put a link in my show notes plus a coupon code that Mosaic Press gave me for I think ten or twenty percent off. Um, so people could buy the book. I highly recommend it. I think it's fantastic. I want to wish you much atzlacha with it. It should, you sh- it should be with much success. People should uh, appreciate the work and the love and the the heart that went into it. You should sell a bunch of copies. And Amir Tzashem, we should um, only be able to connect for positive things. Simchas and... Uh, and the main thing is people like myself and, of course, you and others, what, what we, we have the same mission. We basically want to bring Jews closer if it's through music, if it's through talk, if it's through the written word, and really tell Jews that, you know, there is, uh, you know, we are truly the chosen people, and we are so blessed. And if we focus more on our blessings, we'll have even greater success. And I thanks. love that. Rabbi Shehel, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. So there you have it, episode 108 of the Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to leave me a five-star rating, join the giveaway, and support your favorite show by making a small donation to the Ukrainian refugees who desperately need your help. And guess what? I have a coupon code for you. If you're still listening, head over to my show note links to get 20% off whatever it takes by Rabbi Shia Hecht. Order your copy today, and I will see you all on Monday.